0: Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ETM.
1: I love rental property investing because it brings me true financial freedom. And there's so many financial benefits. So it's not just about passive income and cash flow, All that's, although that's one of the benefits, it also gives you equity buildup because your tenants are paying your mortgage for you over time. And it gives you tax benefits like depreciation. And the fourth bonus benefit is appreciation if your property increases in value over time. So I truly think that every young person should own rental property.
0: Welcome to Everyone's Talking Money podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Game. There's no judgment, no dumb questions, just smart conversations about you and your money. So come on in and grab a seat. Everyone is welcome here. Welcome back to the show. I am so, so glad you're here because this is a great episode. If you're active on social media, you may have heard of Rachel Richards and her brand Money Honey. Rachel's been on this show in the past, but she's here in this episode to share her story and really everything she knows about getting started in real estate investing. The truth is Rachel isn't a trust fund baby and actually never made six figures in a job. But what she did do was find creative ways to save money and at one time was saving half of her salary to ramp up to her first investment, all with less than 20% down. In my opinion, Rachel is a great example of bringing intentionality to your money so you can achieve any money goal. In her 20s, she decided that rental real estate was her means to generating passive income and essentially retiring in less than two years. Yes, you heard that correctly. In her story, I hope you find a bit of yourself and motivation that you can create your own version of Rachel's passive income success. In this episode, we talk about what it means to have financial freedom, how to think about passive income, how to get into real estate investing, how much money you need, how to spot a good deal, and so much more. Rachel, I am so, so incredibly thrilled to have you back on the podcast. I know this is going to be an episode that everybody loves, so thank you for being here. Yeah, girl, thanks for having me back on. I'm excited. I don't often start out the episodes sharing someone's story, but I feel like it's pretty relevant here with the topic because you have a really compelling story. I know you can fill in the blanks, but at age 27, you quit your job, you retired, and now you're living off of 15,000, 20,000 passive income. You've got two best selling books, Money, Honey, and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement, which we've talked about on the show before. And real estate investing, I mean, this kind of feels like everyone's, everyone's dream scenario. And we've got so much to talk about, but just to start, I'm curious, are there any money lessons that you really learned during this transition from like employee to I'm, I'm retired and I'm, I'm working off of or living off of passive income that you
1: can share with us? Oh yeah, there was a lot of money lessons. Most of the money mistakes that I learned from, I guess I should say.
0: <laughs> That's that I like that reality. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um I think one of them it was really a mental health lesson because when you're working at a 9 to 5 job, you have these very set boundaries, right? Where you're going in and then you're leaving the office. And then when you become an entrepreneur, Um, You don't have those clear cut boundaries of here's when I'm starting my day and here's when I'm ending my day. And once I became financially independent, for me, it wasn't about not working anymore. Right. I use the word retired and people are like, well, you're not retired, Rachel. You're still working. And for me, it wasn't about, I never want to work anymore. I just wanted to work on my own terms. So I turned into a workaholic in my financial independence, which was very fun for me. You know, My business is very fulfilling. I love real estate investing. I love helping women learn about money. And so it was a lot of fun. But at the same time, working 12-hour days is not sustainable. So I had what started off as stressful days, even though they were fulfilling, it was stressful. And then I got burnt out. And then that turned into a lot of anxiety, which then turned into depression. And I was not equipped at the time to deal with that. And that was a lesson early on that I had to deal with, I had to cope with and and get through. Um, so I think one of the lessons that I want to talk about is having boundaries as an entrepreneur and business owner. We're always taught to say yes to every opportunity that comes our way. And I think that that's good advice when you're starting out and hustling. But there does come a time where if you continue to say yes, that's going to get you in trouble. And you do have to learn to be selective and learn how to say no and how to have healthy boundaries um, or else it's going to be really hard to to operate a successful business.
0: Wow. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I I've been through a period of depression myself and I know just how debilitating it is and also how frustrating it is because it's like you just can't kind of... Find your way out of it sometimes, and I think what you just shared was really interesting because you were you were in a scenario which you would probably always wanted to be in, but that that kind of overwhelm from being an entrepreneur led to depression, which then I know when you 're in depression, you can also you can't work very well, you can't think very well, like making choices is is really hard,
1: yeah, exactly, and so I was in this blissful period of oh, I quit my job and I'm retired but then straight into the most horrible ment- mental health struggle I've ever experienced in my life. So such a, a crazy period for me. And I'm always like, should I be talking about this on a financial podcast Because I've talked about it before? But I, I also think we don't talk about mental health enough and it's so relevant for entrepreneurs. So thanks for you know kind of giving me a safe space to talk about that. I appreciate it.
0: Were, were there anything or any tips or any... Uh gosh, I don't know, any different modalities that you used really to kind of help your way through it?
1: Yeah. One thing is as a business owner, I had a bad habit of starting my day with zero Intentionality, I guess. I don't know if I just made that word up, but no, I I understand. Yeah. (laughs) I would roll over in bed and look at my phone right when I woke up and look at the emails and the text messages and just immediately start thinking about all the things I had to do. And I started reading this book, The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, one of my favorite books ever. And he was like, You have to start your day with positive intent and really just take a moment, just take a moment to breathe. And to be intentional about, you know, what I woke up today. This is a grateful moment. I'm breathing. I'm I'm grateful. Here are my goals. Here's my purpose in life. And you know, he walks you through these series of doing affirmations, um, meditation, gratitude journaling, exercising, and just having a morning routine. And once I started doing that, I was was able to have a more positive mindset. So that really helps me out of my depression and when i recognize myself now going through these times of sort of overwhelm or anxiety i start to do my morning routine again more consistently and it always helps reset me
0: i love it yeah thanks for sharing that so so powerful and i i want to talk about this idea of being financially independent we i mean there are countless articles about this podcasts i mean people are t- doing videos and tiktoks all about being financially independent like What is the, I mean, this may be an obvious question, but what is the powerful part about being financially independent?
1: To me, it's about freedom. When Before I was financially independent, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, working in a cubicle. I didn't love living in Kentucky because I like to be outdoors and hiking and I don't like the weather there. I didn't like having to show up at work every time. I didn't like having to wear certain things to work every day and to do what others were telling me to do. I wanted to work on my own terms. And a lot of people think financial independence is about having a huge house and driving a certain car. And that's not it at all. To me, financial independence is not having to set an alarm. And it's being able to sit on this call in sweatpants and in comfy clothes. <laughs> and I agree. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's being able to go on trips and to make spur of the moment decisions that I don't have to question whether I have the money to do so or whether my schedule can allow for it because I can do anything I want based on my schedule and based on my finances. Those are the things that you can do when you're financially independent. It's just having all of the freedom possible.
0: So that leads us right in to your story. I'm curious, how did you decide to get into real estate investing, like particularly in your, in your twenties? I think real estate investing is something maybe traditionally, if I'm going to be maybe slightly stereotypical here that people think about a little bit later in life, but what led you to say, okay, this is something I want to do for sure. And I want to do it now.
1: Yes, I think you're right. And here's the thing. I've always been a finance nerd and I still am to this day (laughs) proud of it. (laughs) Um, I truly was a finance nerd starting in like middle school and in high school. I was reading all the books. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in in high school. And that was the first book where I had this light bulb moment of, wow, real estate investing is the answer. This is going to get me out of the rat race. This is going to help me achieve financial independence. So I knew about this from a really early age and it was just a matter of me figuring out how to make it happen. Um, But I knew that that was going to be my path to not having to work for somebody else.
0: Wow. I mean, it's just, it's really inspiring because I mean, I know the power of real estate investing and yet I still have just sort of dabbled in it. And I love that you actually were like, okay, I know this is powerful and I just need to get out there and do it. And I'm also thinking, I mean, obviously, we've, we've talked a little bit about mental health here and, and limiting beliefs. Were there any limiting beliefs or maybe like a negative money mindset blocks that you had to overcome when you first started real estate investing? I mean, particularly being a young female.
1: Oh, gosh. So many, so many limiting beliefs. And I waited. I waited to start investing in real estate because I was telling myself things like, you're too young you don't have enough money, you don't have enough knowledge, you don't have enough experience. So I waited. And you're gonna laugh at this. I waited until I was 24. Okay. So uh, (laughs) it's funny, because of course, that's still so young to start investing in real estate. But if I knew then what I know now, I could have invested at a younger age. I just didn't know some of these creative ways that you could have gotten started sooner. And really, I held myself back because I thought you needed a lot of money to invest in real estate. So I was saving and saving and saving for years and years so that I could finally get started. Also, though, it was a lot of fear. Um, I had a lot of fear taking that first step. I mean, It's a very scary thing when you're looking at buying a hundred or two hundred thousand dollar investment in your early twenties and it's like, well, what if I make a huge mistake? What if I lose tens of thousands of dollars? There's all these what if scenarios going through your mind. And here's the thing, I'm a perfectionist. Okay. I'm a control freak. So I <laughs> You're have these, in good company. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. So I was like, oh, I, I just want to read more. I want to learn more. I want to feel a hundred percent prepared. That way I'm not going to lose any money. I'm not going to make any mistakes. So I kept doing that. I kept just reading more, learning more. And I just had I had to have this moment at some point where I had to accept the fact that I was going to make mistakes. Because no matter how prepared you are, you can't avoid making mistakes. There's always going to be like, you don't know what you don't know. So I had to accept the fact that I was going to make mistakes, mistakes that would cost me time, mistakes that would cost me money. And there was no getting over it. Even as an experienced investor now, I still make mistakes because there's always more to learn. So once you can accept that, it can help you get over the hump of just getting started and taking that first step. Because the the mo- the more the most that you will ever learn is learning by doing. So you just have to get started.
0: So my hope is that we also dispel some myths around real estate investing you just talked about one where you thought you needed to have a lot of cash to start so i want to do a little bit of a, a deep dive into the money side of real estate investing because i know this is always where where the questions are tell me about that like very first property like how did you find it how much cash did you need like what was the what was the process of the very first property
1: yeah I'm glad you're asking about this. We can spend a lot of time on this, and I can also share all of the ways you can get started without having a lot of money, like the things I would have done if I had known about them um so in terms of first and foremost, how I got my first deal, so I was twenty four at the time it was in twenty seventeen and I had my husband at the time we partnered up and and he helped me get my first deal. We helped each other. so we were investing in Louisville, Kentucky, and in twenty seventeen is when we first found our first duplex. We had a few things going for us that helped us come up with the money for our first duplex. So first of all, we both graduated without student loan debt. We did that on my on my side because I sold Cutco cutlery. Have you ever heard of Cutco knives? Of course. <laughs>
0: my family had a set of Cutco knives. Oh yes. my
1: gosh. Amazing. So yeah, I sold Cutco knives. I paid my way through school. My parents were not able to afford at all to help me pay for college. So I paid my way through school. I graduated without debt. And then my husband... Um, We happen to be recording this episode on Veterans Day. My husband is a veteran, and so he used his military benefits to pay for his college education. So he also graduated without debt. So that was a big advantage for us. Neither of us had student loan debt. And um, the other thing I always like to share is when people hear my story, they're always like, oh, you must be a trust fund baby. Uh, No, (laughs) I'm not a trust fund baby. And in fact, I never made six figures from a job or a career. I never made six figures. Starting out after college, I was making $36,000. In my next job, I was making $32,000. In my next job, I was making $42,000. Okay, so by no means was I raking it in. Um, But because I wasn't making, or because I didn't have student loan debt, I was able to save a lot of my salary. I'm gonna be real with you.
0: Delete.me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing and phishing scams. I just started using Delete.me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. (laughs) I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash E-T-M. Go to joindeleteme.com slash E-T-M and use code E-T-M for 20% off. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because, let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals, so you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com ETM. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this, they release updates every two weeks and they even allow customers to submit suggestions vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third-party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's m o n a r c h m o n e y dot com slash
1: etm for your extended thirty day free trial. So the second thing I was doing was I was being really frugal. I was saving half of that thirty six thousand dollar income.
2: Wow. I was living.
1: Yeah, I was living off something like fifteen hundred dollars a month and saving half of that salary. So frugal living was another thing that we were doing to save a lot of money. And then the third thing was that we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, which is an affordable city. It's a low cost of living. And that helped us save more money as well. So by 2017, um, a few years after I graduated, I had saved $10,000 of my own money. And my husband by that time had done the same thing. So this duplex we found, it was a $100,000 duplex we each pooled $10,000 of our own savings together to get to the $20,000 down payment. And that's how we bought our first rental property.
0: Wow. What an amazing story. I I love that you share that you're not a trust fund kid because I think that's important. You're right. People's minds do go to, well, you must have had money from your parents or there must have been some source of income. But no, it was just through persistence And being frugal and being very intentional with your money, that you were able to do uh, this—I mean, that's just amazing. So tell me, there's so many questions, follow-up questions I have. But first, you mentioned sharing details about like other creative ways to buy your first property. I'd love to hear about some of those.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because I could have gotten started even sooner if I knew about some of these strategies. So there's three ways you can get started if you don't have a lot of money, like even if you had less than the 10 grand that I had. Number one is wholesaling. Wholesaling is a strategy where you go out and you find investment deals, like you find good deals on investment properties, and you make an offer on the property and you get something called an assignable contract then you take this contract and you can sell it to other investors, other investors who have money to actually buy this deal. So you're never intending to buy the deal. You're just intending to find deals for other investors. You're acting like the middleman in the transaction. And here's the thing, finding deals is the hardest part. So other investors who don't have the time to do this, but do have the money, they will pay you for to Mm -hmm. find the deal for them. I've seen wholesalers make... Five, 10, 15, 20, 25 grand per deal just by going out and doing this hard work and finding the deal. And you don't have to have a cent to do this. Um, So the great thing is you're learning a lot as you do this about how to find and analyze deals. And it only takes a handful of these until you have enough money of your own where then you can go invest in your own rental properties. So that's the first way wholesaling. The second way is house hacking house hacking is really, really smart. And I would definitely have done this on my own um, if I didn't have my husband, Andrew, or if I just knew about this method. So with investing in a rental property, most lenders will require you to put down 20 to 25%. All right. So if you live in a place like California, and you're looking at buying like a million dollar rental property, which is a which is not an uncommon price. That means you'd have to come up with a two hundred fifty thousand dollar down payment. That's I mean I don't even know it's hardly insane. anyone right that has that much in, just sitting in cash. Like who has that amount of money? Um, okay, so with house hacking, the, what what is cool about this is that if you live in a property as a primary residence, you there's a lot of ways where you don't have to put that much down you can put 3.5% down with an FHA loan. If you have military or you're a veteran, you can put 0% down with a VA loan. Or even with a normal conventional loan, you can often put 5 or 10% down and pay PMI. And that's a, a way that you can get around the 20 to 25% down payment requirement. So the most common way I've seen people do this is they get like a duplex or a triplex So you can get a triplex, a three unit building, live in one unit and rent out the other two units. So that way you can live in it as your primary residence. Maybe you put three and a half percent down, you rent out the other units. And oftentimes this can totally offset your housing cost. So you're basically living there for free. You get your first rental property. You've saved tens of thousands of dollars on the down payment. So you don't have to come up with a ton of money. You live there for a year and then you move out, and that's how you get your first rental property. So it's a really, really cool strategy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've actually had some friends who have done that strategy. And when it works, it works really
1: well. (laughs) Yes. It's pretty brilliant. And even if it doesn't work where you're off, where you're living there for free, even if you're just offsetting your living costs, that's still a win. And you're still getting a rental property with less than 25% down. So
0: talk to me a little bit about you mentioned the the like finding the deal part. So if I'm out looking for rental real estate, how do I know what a good deal is? Like what am I looking for?
1: Okay, great question. There's a few metrics that I pay attention to, and every investor looks at different things, but there's two metrics in particular that I calculate that tell me whether something is a good deal. First of all is the monthly net cash flow. Okay, monthly net cash flow. In simple terms, this just means how much you're profiting each month, like how much you're walking away with each month in profit. Um, The way to calculate this is to take the monthly income minus the monthly expenses, and then you're left with the monthly profit. Now, it's easy to think all right, so I take the rent income minus the mortgage payment, and I'm left with a profit. All right. It's easy to think that. (laughs) Not that easy
0: probably, right?
1: (laughs) Not that easy. (laughs) I see a lot of investors do that. And they think they're going to be making all this profit. And they're like, wow, that looks really good. And I'm like, wait, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. Because the biggest mistake that new investors make is that they underestimate the expenses on the rental property. Okay. They underestimate the expenses. This is the biggest mistake I see new investors make. You have to remember to include vacancy, to include property manager. Okay. Even if you don't intend on having a property manager at first, I think it's smart to start off self-managing and to get that experience. But you always want to have the option of hiring a property manager in the future. So you need to build that expense in. Chances are you don't want to quit your job to become a full-time landlord. Okay. We want to make this passive income, not active income. (laughs) So you want to have vacancy, property manager, capital expenditure, maintenance and repair, HOA fees, pest control, lawn care, utilities, um, just a miscellaneous bucket. And I'm probably forgetting other expenses, but those are all of the ones off the top of my head. And I think I just named eight or nine other expenses besides the mortgage payment and the property taxes and the insurance. Okay. So there's a lot of other expenses when it comes to owning a rental property and you can't forget about any of them or else you're going to be in the hole when you end up buying the rental property. So that's the monthly net cash flow. Now, when I was investing... I was aiming for $200 per door. Okay, $200 in profit per door. So, on a duplex, something with two units or two doors, that's $400. That would be really, really good, almost exceptional in these days because it's such a difficult market to navigate. Um, Most investors and a lot of the people like in the bigger pockets, guys, they aim for $100 per door, which is still really good. But that's what I was aiming for, just to kind of give you an idea.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. Now the other metric that I always paid attention to was the cash on cash ROI. Okay. Cash on cash ROI. This is measured by taking the annual profit, All right? Annual profit. So that's your monthly net cash flow times 12 annual profit divided by the total initial investment. All right, your initial investment consists of your down payment, your closing costs, any money you put into a renovation. Uh, um, If it's an Airbnb, it could include the money you needed to furnish the place, to stock the kitchen, to buy the towels and the linens, all that stuff. So just the initial money, it's not like the total price of the house, but just the initial money you needed to essentially bring to closing and to make it move and ready. All right, so annual profit divided by initial investment. Does that make sense so far? Yep. Yep. Totally. Gotcha. Okay. So cash on cash ROI. So this is kind of comparable to like what you would make in the stock market. So if someone says, I can make eight to 10% in the stock market, and then someone says my cash on cash ROI in a rental is eight to 10%, you're kind of comparing apples to apples. So my thought with the cash-on-cash cash ROI is that I wanted it to be higher than what I thought I can make in the stock market over the long run. Because I just figured if I'm not beating the stock market, then what's the point, right? I could just right. put my money in the stock market, literally not have to lift a finger, and be making 8 to 10%. So for that reason, I was always aiming to make 12% cash-on-cash cash ROI, now, that was my minimum requirement. And just because those are my minimums doesn't mean that they have to be anyone else's. So everyone, and every investor can have his or her own goals. Um, for example, I've seen other investors who are okay with having a lower ROI as long as they have a really high cash flow. Or I've seen other investors who, as long as they're breaking even on cash flow but making a 15% ROI... They just want their money to be working hard for them and they don't care about the passive income. So those are my so there's minimums. Not,
0: there's not one way to slice it, right? You figure, figure out what, what works and makes sense with you and that's what you go with.
1: Exactly. Figure out what's important to you. What are your own goals? Like, Know what they are. Set your own minimums. And that way when you're analyzing the properties, you know what to say yes to and what to say no to.
0: That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot slash etm to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash etm. Talking about money is hard. You know this already. All over the world, people are taught to never talk about money, politics, sex, or religion in polite company. On 50 Fires, a podcast about money and meeting, from executive producers Chip and Joanna Gaines, host and financial conversationalist Carl Richards, We'll remove money from that list by having frank, funny, and often difficult conversations about money, the kind we're all told not to have, with guests from all walks of life. In each episode, Carl will invite a new guest to answer the question, what does money mean to you? Their answers will reveal much more than their attitudes about money, spanning revelations about identity, community, faith, family, and the true meaning of wealth. Tune in to hear deep conversations about money and the meaning it holds in our lives. You can find 50 Fires on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: Whatever you're saving up for, a CD from Sandy Spring Bank lets you grow your savings at a guaranteed rate. Right now, earn interest at 4.5% APY on an 8-month CD special or 4.25% APY on a 14-month CD special. Learn more at sandyspringbank.com slash cd specials. Minimum opening deposit to earn the annual percentage yield is $500 for the eight-month CD special and $2,500 for the 14-month CD special. Member FDIC.
0: And you talked about duplex, triplex. Walk us through a little bit the decision point between we're buying a single family house for rental real estate versus duplex, triplex, and on up. How do we Is it the same process that we go through when we're evaluating what to choose?
1: Yeah, I think analyzing them is the same process. I mean, looking at the numbers is pretty much the same process. But deciding between single family and multifamily is a little bit different. I always have loved multifamily a little bit more, and I'll tell you why. (laughs) Um, So if you have one single family house and you have one tenant, and that tenant can't pay rent, or that tenant is a jerk and refuses to pay rent or something like that, then you are going to be straight up out of money or unable to do anything. And you're going to have to cover those own costs out of your own pocket. So it's a little bit of a higher risk versus if you have a quad, for example, a four unit building, and you have one tenant that is unable to pay rent or one unit that is vacant, then you still have three other tenants that are paying rent and that are covering the costs. So you're not going to lose nearly as much money. So from a diversification perspective, you're going to be more diversified the more units that you have. And that's why I like multifamily a little bit better from that reason. Also, I think that multifamily tends to be less volatile. Um, People that are buying single family homes tend to be buying them for themselves. I mean, there's investors that do it as well, but they tend to be buying it for themselves as their own house and it can be more emotionally driven, whereas multifamily houses are only being bought by investors and they're based on the income that the house is bringing in. So I think they're just less volatile and susceptible to changes in the market. So I I just like multifamily better for those reasons, but we do have two single family homes as well.
0: And is it common that, let's say I want to get into rental real estate and maybe I live in one of those markets that are just exorbitant like a Los Angeles or Chicago or New York. I'm sure there's many others. Is it common that I would look for rental real estate maybe in some other place that I don't even live?
1: Absolutely. Yes. And I definitely recommend doing that. I definitely think you should be open to doing that if you live in a high cost of living city. Um, And not only that, but considering the landlord tenant laws of your state. So some states are more landlord friendly. Some states are more tenant friendly. And if you're Mm. living in a state that's more tenant friendly, that's another reason to consider investing out of state. So, um, and I keep bringing up California, but California is another of those states. Not only is it really, really expensive, but it's landlords don't have a lot of rights. And so for that reason, I wouldn't invest there. So I, I always work with my California clients. I'm always telling them how to invest out of state. It's easier than you think. Um, All of my rentals are in Kentucky and we did buy them when we lived there, but we now live in Colorado. And I was so surprised to find that managing them from afar is so much easier than I thought I would be. (laughs) That's good. It's so good because here's the thing. When I lived there, even if I lived right next door to my rental property, I'm not going to go over and fix the AC unit on my own anyways. I don't know how to do that. I don't have any interest in learning. So either way... I'm going to be calling a maintenance guy to fix that. And it's now that we live far away, we have to have the systems and the teams and the people in place to fix those things for us. So even if we were tempted to go down and fix something on our own once or twice a week, which we did try to do a lot, we're now forced to have other people do do those things for us. So it's actually been a lot easier to manage them from afar.
0: So you you buy your first property, right? And at what point did you decide, okay, we want to leverage this into another property? And what does that look like? What does that look like when you're going from like one rental property to another, to another, and so on and so forth?
1: So uh, Right after we bought our first property, I think all investors experience this where it's like, before the first property, it's like, is this really going to work? Are, are we really doing this? And then right after their first property, it's like, oh my gosh, this is really going to work. We can really (laughs) see this happening. And it's just so exciting. Your dreams are turning into reality. So I think it was immediately after we bought the first property and we just started looking for the next property. Like We got so excited and we were ready to scale as big and as quickly as possible. So we scaled very quickly. We scaled from zero to almost 40 doors in two and a half years. Wow. And yeah, so it was very fast. Um, There were a few things we did that allowed us to scale so quickly. Number one, we did not give in to lifestyle creep. So that first duplex was immediately cash flowing $500 profit. It was a lot. It did very, very well. And we had worked so hard to find this duplex. It It took us so long there were so many ups and downs. It, we almost quit at one point because it was so discouraging. So it would have been very easy for us to be like, wow, we did it. We made it. We have $500 extra per month. Let's live it up. Let's you know, get a new car. Let's do all these things that we've been waiting to do. But we didn't. We just stayed disciplined. We put it off and we just decided we're going to save 100% of this profit and we're going to reinvest this all into our next down payment. So we didn't give into lifestyle creep. We saved 100% of the cash flow. And then the next thing, and this is really the key, is that I had my real estate license. And I didn't have my license for the purpose of having clients. It was only for our own purposes as being investors. So every investment property we bought, I would represent myself as the buyer's agent. And we would fully deplete our savings for the down payment but I knew that I was going to be getting a commission check back at closing for thousands of dollars. Some of these properties that we later bought, I would get like 10 grand in commission. And that would be, that would give us such a huge bump that we could save towards the next down payment. Um, And in the meantime, I think by then my husband was making six figures at some point in 2017 or 2018. Again, I never made six figures, but combined, we were making over six figures. So between our 50% savings rate, all the cash flow that kept snowballing, the commission checks, like we were making, we were saving a ton of money and we could come up with down payment after down payment very quickly to scale up to the 40 units. So it was six buildings, 40, almost 40 doors. And that's how we scaled so quickly.
0: What an incredible story. I mean, talk about discipline. I don't know if I would even have (laughs) that. that much discipline over lifestyle creep. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And you've talked a lot on, on social media lately about selling some of those 40 units and your interest in starting to invest in real estate syndicates. So tell me a little bit about like that decision point of deciding like, okay, it's time to sell. And then what is a real estate
1: syndicate? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Real estate investing has always been a means to an end for us. It was never something we were so passionate about that we wanted to own 250 doors and have this huge empire. It was just something that allowed us to become financially independent and allowed us to pursue our dreams. So it got to this point. And here's the other thing. I I view real estate investing as this time versus money trade-off journey, I guess. So Most investors starting out don't have a lot of money and have more time. And that's how we were. So starting out, we were willing to hustle and work really, really hard to invest in things that made us as much money as possible. And now that we're kind of on the other end of our journey, where we do have a lot more money, fortunately, we now value our time a lot more. So we're now interested in investing in things that are much, much more passive even if they don't make us as much money. So that is a lot of the reason that we chose to sell some of our bigger buildings this year. We sold our three biggest buildings, which were like 10 or 12 units each. So I think we sold 34 units and they were our buildings that we spent the most amount of time on. They caused us the most amount of stress, (laughs) but they also made us the most amount of money, but it just got us to a point where it wasn't worth our peace of mind anymore and we knew that we could sell them and reinvest the money into something even more passive, even if it made less money. And what that was, was a syndication, which is another type of real estate investment. So a syndication, it's really cool. Um, for example, let's say there's a $10 million apartment complex that an investor wants to buy, but the investor doesn't have money. So he or she forms a syndication. A syndication is where people like you and me can go invest in it. As sort of like silent partners or limited partners. And we're not just lending them our money, we're actually becoming equity owners in this apartment complex, which means that when we invest, we're entitled to a share of the profits. So when I invest in a syndication, I receive a monthly or quarterly profit share, like a, a distribution of the cash flow. And then if the apartment complex ever is refinanced or if it ever sells, I get a share of the profits when it sells as well. So, and I don't have to do anything. I do the due diligence, I send in my investment, but then I don't have to do anything after that. I'm not managing anything. I just sit back and I collect money. So it's it is the most passive form of real estate investing I have found. And the coolest thing is is you get all of the tax benefits as well. Um, the same as if you own a direct rental property. So you get a K-1, you get the depreciation, you get all the same tax benefits. So we are loving it so far. We're trying to get all of our money reinvested into syndications and that is gonna be the path that we pursue this next year.
0: What kind of, uh, are there any averages, I guess I should say, of, of return on on syndications?
1: I would say that most of them project in the mid-teens in terms of ROI. Like I feel like I always see something between 13 and 17%. But what you have to Which keep is in pretty mind, good. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's definitely pretty good. What you have to keep in mind though, is that these syndicators can make the projections say anything they want them to say, right? right? It's just a projection. So with syndications, you have to do just as much, if not more due diligence on the syndicator and the team putting this together as the syndication itself. So it's really important to be introduced to somebody that's legit, that has a lot of experience, and that you trust, and that's very trustworthy. So if, I, if I'm if i listening today and I'm, I'm really excited, this idea
0: of starting my journey into real estate investing, what would you say are kind of my top, I don't know, however many steps I should take right now to even just get started on this journey?
1: Absolutely. So if you're an aspiring real estate investor... Um, I would say, you know, go out and learn. There's so many resources out there. Bigger Pockets is a great resource for learning about getting started with real estate investing. Um, Syndications, there's a great book called The Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke. All you need to do is read that book and you'll be like an expert investor into syndications. So learn. Um, Number two, build your team. If you want to invest in rental property, you need to have an investor-friendly agent. You need to network with a small local lender that has really good flexibility. Find an insurance agent, find a contractor, a home inspector. Um, Those would be like the five people I would start with. And then number three is narrow down your location. So look for a landlord-friendly state, an affordable state, uh, maybe a state where you have family or a state you grew up in or where you're at least somewhat familiar with the area, and a state where people are moving to. So, like the southeast is really hot and popular at the moment because a lot of people are moving to those areas. Um, but that's what I would look for in a location. So that, that those are the three steps I would say to start with.
0: So, I mean, you've done so much already. You have best-selling books, which we're going to talk about in another upcoming episode. You've got the real estate. You teach about money. You have some amazing masterminds. Yeah. I'm just curious, like. What is
1: next for you on on your own journey of financial independence? Well, thank you. Yeah. I think it's just trying to impact more people. And I don't mean to sound cliche with that, but (laughs) my business just, it brings me a lot of fulfillment. And my mission has always been about empowering women and young people. And and that's why I started the business in the first place. So I just want to educate. I want to make money uh, Sassy and fun and simple thing to learn about, and um, you know I, I have a lot of courses and programs already I don't think I necessarily need to make more, so it's just it's just finding a way to put out free content and resonate with people, honestly, just doing more of what I love
0: so do you think that you will? keep the units you, you still have, or will you eventually like look to maybe sell those units? Like you said, it was kind of a, you know, ends to a mean, uh, or means to an end, uh, eventually sell those units and maybe go like full time into the real estate syndicate. Are you still like, that's still sort of a, a plan that is, that is coming together for you guys.
1: Yeah, I think we'll keep the four units that we have because they're long-term rentals and they're much easier to manage. We really don't have to do anything to manage those. And then I definitely want to get into more syndications. I want want to invest in maybe five or 10 more next year as a limited partner. and then, sorry, my dog is barking. <laughs> um, and then I think we want to just buy a primary residence in Colorado because we're still living in Airbnbs at the moment, and that's definitely getting old. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so I can I can totally relate to that. Well, I mean, it's just such an inspiring story. And I think what I love about your story is it's it's not about having this huge bank account full of cash and having all these options, but... It is about being intentional with your money. But more than that, you guys created this vision of what you want your life to look like and you found a creative way to make it happen. So I think it's just such an inspiring story that no matter what you want to create in your life, there is a way to do it, even if you're not totally flush with cash.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And one thing I always tell people, and I truly believe this, is that anyone at any age, on any income, can absolutely achieve financial independence.
0: Okay. That's an exclamation mark sentence. I love it. Well, Rachel, tell everyone where they can go to find you if they're interested in taking one of your courses. Where do they connect with you?
1: Yeah. Thank you. So um, anyone can find my stuff on moneyhoneyrachel.com. Instagram, you can follow me at Rachel. And what I'd love to do for your listeners is if anyone wants to download my passive income starter kit, I will give that for free. So you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash bonus to download that.
0: Rachel has always inspired me. For one, it's never to limit what you think is possible. What she was able to achieve in her 20s is just simply amazing. And at one point, she and her husband owned 38 doors before As she mentioned, she sold some to invest in syndicates and really discover what the next phase of life was going to look like. My biggest takeaways are one, you got to get a clear vision of what you want. Two, you got to create that plan because with any amount of money, you can make it work. Three, you got to be relentless. And four, you need to find people to help you. If you love this episode, the highest compliment you can pay me is to share it with someone you know.